Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the New Year's Eve special edition of the mother of all talk shows. Of course, it's largely, well, at least partly pre-recorded. I could hardly ask the rest of the team to work on New Year's Eve, but me, I'm live. Never been more live, actually, because, well, New Year's Eve doesn't mean the same to me as it does to most of you. I'll be toasting in the bells with my usual Red Bush tea. Other teas are available. But the interviews that you're going to see, you might describe as the best of the mother of all talk shows in 2023. We have a galaxy of star interviews available for you tonight. So in a different way to usual, fasten your seatbelts. It's still going to be a bumpy night. It is the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. This is, as I said, the special edition, New Year's Eve edition of the mother of all talk shows. Many of the different parts of the show have been pre-recorded in order to allow the team to get a break on New Year's Eve, but I am delivering this monologue absolutely live. In fact, I've never felt so alive. I am trembling with indignation at what 2023 became. And I'm trembling with anticipation for what 2024 might actually be. Anticipation in a good way and in a bad way. I've said most of what I have to say about 2023, an annus horribilis, almost unimaginable at the beginning of this year. If you had told me that a modern so-called Western state, although it's in the East, would be able to massacre almost 11,000 children in 11 weeks and not only get away with it, but still be the recipient of endless propaganda, finance, and military and war material support from all the so-called democracies in the world, I would not have believed you. Even me, even me with all of my experience of more than 50 years in politics, more than 50 years in Palestinian-Israeli politics, I would not have believed you if you had told me that Benjamin Netanyahu would be able to slaughter far more children than Herod ever imagined slaughtering and still be being presented as a victim, as someone righteous, as someone doing the right thing, I would never have believed you. Well over 25,000 people have been slaughtered 
in 11 weeks towards the end of 2023. And the great majority of them have been women and children. Just think about that for a minute. Could any other country present as legitimate a military response that killed 70% of its victims and they were women and children? And of the 30% of the victims, the Israeli military themselves are open about the fact they have killed hardly any Hamas fighters in Gaza. How could they? These Hamas fighters are in these tunnels under the ground that you've heard so much about. In which case, why are you endlessly bombing with 2,000-pound bombs the houses, the shops, the churches, the mosques, the health centers, the hospitals, the marketplaces, the living accommodation of more than 70% of the population of 2.3 million people in the Gaza Strip. Where's that at? How does that even compute? How does nobody ever ask that question? If you're not killing any Hamas, why are you killing all these women and children? And why should we continue to support you in doing so? Why do we have a media and a political class that continues to claim that you are the goodies? You're the white hats. The others are the black hats. They're the baddies, except it's their women and children in their tens of thousands who are being massacred. How does that compute on any level? The numbers of people killed on October 7th has been dramatically scaled down. Number of Israelis killed is just over half of the number that was originally announced of 1,200. That was often by hyperbole inflated to 1,500, but 1,200 was the number of dead people claimed. Well, it's now about 640 Israelis that are confirmed dead. Just one of them, a child, by the way, and killed by, at this stage, persons unknown. Killed perhaps by Israeli tank fire, perhaps by Israeli Apache helicopter fire. Killed by anti-tank weapons, deployed by the Israel Defense Force. Who knows? Whatever way you dice it, it's a large number of people to be killed in a prison breakout, in a concentration camp breakout. It's a gigantic loss to the political prestige of Netanyahu's government, to the invincible image of the Israeli armed forces, to the even more invincible image of Israeli intelligence, which turned out to be so intelligent it didn't see any of this coming. And it's a lot of blood. Even if you accept 
that many of the Israelis killed were of military age and therefore part-time Israeli soldiers, it's still a lot of blood to lose, a shock, a trauma, a horror to Israeli society. But if you're shocked by the death of 640 Israelis on October 7th, how come you're not exponentially more shocked by the death of more than 25,000 people trapped in a cage from which they cannot escape the cage, the concentration camp called Gaza. How can you be shocked at one but not even more shocked at the other? How is that possible? Morally, intellectually, how is it possible for you to be so unmoved by the loss of all these innocent people, knowing as you must that collective punishment of civilian populations is a crime. It's an international war crime to kill innocent people, to punish guilty people, even if you're of the point of view that the resistance fighters in Gaza had no right to break out of the concentration camp on October 7th, and I'll come back to that point. But even if you're one of those who think they have no right, you must know that it must be wrong and is a crime to kill women and children who cannot possibly have been associated with that if the British government had followed that policy in the north of Ireland during the long war against British occupation in the six counties of the north of Ireland, then every time there was an IRA atrocity anywhere against British targets in Ireland or against British targets in Britain, including the cabinet room, while the prime minister was sitting there with the cabinet, including the British Parliament itself, including St. Paul's, including the glistening, gleaming towers of capitalism in Canary Wharf. Every time such an atrocity took place, if the British had bombed West Belfast and killed thousands, tens of thousands, yeah, tens of thousands, of innocent Irish people, what do you think the American government would have had to say about that? What do you think the American government would have done about a British government killing tens of thousands of Irish people as a response to an IRA atrocity in London? Just think about that. And think about these numbers in the context of Gaza's 2.5 million population. Scale it up to your country's population. 2.36% of all the people in Gaza have been either killed or wounded in 11 weeks. What's 2.6%? of your population, 
You can do the math. But for the Americans, let me help them. It would be well over 8 million Americans killed or wounded would be your national equivalent. Just think about that. And so I return to the point I made at the beginning. If you had told me 11 weeks ago that this could possibly all still be happening on New Year's Eve, I would not have believed you. I would not have believed that the Western governments, about whom more later, would allow their client state beholden to them for everything. Israel is a tiny garrison of Western power in the Middle East. It could not survive five minutes without the financial subventions coming from the West, without the weapons and the wherewithal, without the diplomatic and political support, without the media infrastructure of support, Israel would not last five minutes. So you've got to ask yourself, what should the tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people in the West who profoundly disagree with all of this, who are revolted by it, who cannot gaze anymore at small children carrying other dead, small children over their shoulders dead through the streets, who cannot bear any longer to see babes in swaddling clothes like the Messiah himself in the manger in Bethlehem in Palestine, who cannot bear to see the lifeless bodies of these children anymore. What are we supposed to do about the fact that our governments made it all possible? Well, it's to that that I now turn. 1848 was known as the year of revolutions. 2024 will likely not be a year of revolutions, though you can live in hope. But it will be a year of elections. And I'm going to concentrate on just two of them. And I'm going to lay out the path for self-respecting normal humans in the United States and the United Kingdom and what they should do in those elections. It could be summed up in one line. So I'll do that in case you want to go and put the kettle on. Here's the one line. Do not vote for any of the parties who have made this slaughter, this genocide possible. Because if you do, you are complicit in it. If you give a vote to the Democrats or the Republicans, if you give a vote to the Conservatives 
or to the misnamed Labour Party, you become complicit in the crimes that these parties have committed over the course of this last period, this ghastly annus horribilis of 2023. Let me start with the more important, the United States of America. Joe Biden was never the lesser of two evils. He's been an evil bastard all of my life. I have known him to be evil, personified, all of my life. He's older than me. He acts much older than me. But he's only 10 years, 11, 12 years older than me. Therefore, all of my political life, I have known of somebody called Joe Biden. I've known him to be a crook all of my life. I've known him to be a thief, a plagiarizer, a hawker of war, a merchant of war, a master in the end of war all of my life. I have known him to be a fraud, a phony who claimed to be on the front line of the struggle for civil rights when he was nowhere near it. I've known him to be a man that was so intellectually bereft, he stole speeches of the Welsh windbag, Neil Kinnock, the erstwhile leader of the British Labour Party, whom no self-respecting politician would ever nick speeches from. Trust me on that. I've known him to be a man on the take. All of my life I've known him. The senator for Delaware, where almost every dodgy corporation in the world is officially registered. He has been on the take decade after decade, building up a portfolio for him and his large family of multi-million pound homes and a lifestyle far removed from that that could be enjoyed on a normal public sector salary, if you get my drift. But all of that was of little importance to me. What mattered to me, and when he first came right into the center, right into the crosshairs, of my political radar was when he became the foghorn, the number one champion of George W. Bush's invasions of Afghanistan and then Iraq. Biden was on his feet. In fact, he was scarcely off his feet. As a Democrat supporting the Republican president, imbecile George W. Bush, every inch of the way. There was no argument he would not deploy for the destruction, the breakup, the annihilation of Iraq. He seemed to glory in it, as if he viscerally enjoyed wading in the blood of the Iraqi people and the destruction of Iraq that he willed. He even introduced legislation 
to split Iraq up into multiple different countries. That's when I really knew I hated them very much indeed. And then his support for Netanyahu's Israel is not new. It is sincere. He sincerely told us decades ago, and I'll quote him, if Israel did not exist, America would have to invent it. That sums it up perfectly, actually. A rare moment of unplagiarized eloquence by Joe Biden. Because he regarded Israel to be what it is. It is an unsinkable aircraft carrier for United States imperial power in the Arab Middle East. That's what it was founded for by the British Empire long before it became uh, the client state of the United States of America. I've watched as he stole the election in 2020. I've watched as he attempted to rig the election in 2024 by banging up behind bars, disqualified from standing. His main opponent, in fact, a main opponent who leaves him trailing in the polls. Joe Biden's support's now down at 34% in the dichotomy of American politics, where there's only the Republican and the Democrat who have a serious chance of being elected president. This means a landslide defeat for Joe Biden. As you know, he got the most votes any American president ever got. Well, he's about to lose more votes than any American president has ever lost. I watched him wandering around stages, falling down steps, falling up steps. I watched him intellectually unhinged, delirious with what can only be described as a kind of Alzheimer's, thinly disguised by big lettering on auto cues that even then he could increasingly rarely read and deliver, often reading out the parentheses on the auto cue, telling him, repeat, telling him, move to the next paragraph, telling him, they're telling me to stop now. And so I watched all of that with a mixture of incredulity, a mixture, I'll be honest with you, God forgive me, of, uh, of uh, humor. I found it funny that Joe Biden was running the United States of America whilst unable to tie his own shoelaces, to pull up his trousers. I was waiting for the day he turned out into the Rose Garden with no trousers at all. But over the last 11 weeks, I have seen this man, Joe Biden, as almost demonic. He went from being, to me, a model of senility to a model of wickedness 
and evil, a demonic grin with which he has thrice delivered the absolutely false claims that have thrice been walked back by his own officials every time he makes the statement. Joe Biden has made himself not just the chief armorer of the genocide in Gaza, but he has made himself the chief propagandist for it too, repeating absolute lies about beheaded children, children in ovens, children hanging on clotheslines, all of it black, dripping with blood lies, all to engender the kind of war psychosis necessary to continue to persuade the public to support, the Congress to fund, the Pentagon to arm this genocide in Gaza. And so, when the history of this comes to be written, and it will be written swiftly indeed, we're not talking about the early 20th century where statesmen were long dead, where those responsible for crimes were long dead before they were historically damned. No, we're not living in that era anymore. This history will be writ swiftly and it will condemn Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken and the rest of the Democratic Party gang of thieves and murderers as even more responsible for this great crime than Benjamin Netanyahu himself. But what of the Republicans? You know, of course, Donald Trump isn't a part of the Republican establishment, but they don't call him the Zion Dawn for nothing. Donald Trump has cheered on this slaughter with just the same gusto as any Democrat, as have the leaders of the Republican majority in the House and the minority in the Senate, as have the vast majority of leading figures in the Republican Party. Now, who's the lesser of two evils between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? I say none of them. If I were an American voter, my vote would be going to my good friend Dr. Jill Stein standing again as she did in 2016 as the candidate of the Green Party, an intellectual woman, a woman with great empathy, great sensitivity, and great knowledge to American and international politics. But whoever you vote for, and there's Cornell West, there are numerous other independents, whoever you vote for, don't vote for either the Democrats or the Republicans. If you do, 
your hands will be stained in the blood in which their hands, long plunged, will never be free of the stain. All the perfumes of Arabia will not expunge that damned spot. And let me turn to my own country, where a remarkably similar situation exists. I won't waste too much time on Rishi Sunak, who he, you may be asking, as Joe Biden put it, Rashid Sanuk, go figure, is what he said in public on the day that it was learned that a little Indian called Rishi Sunak was now the master of the remains of the British Empire. Rashid Sanuk is exactly what he looks like, exactly who he says he is. And therefore, if there was a lesser of two evils in the British picture, it would be him. Because he's honestly robbing the working people of the country. He's honestly serving as a tiwala in the American empire. He's honestly not pretending to be anything other than what he is. He's a shoeshine boy for the American empire as his antecedents were shoeshine boys for the British empire. He's at least got the benefit of honesty. My ire has to be concentrated on the man that pretends to be the leader of the opposition, a man called Sir Keir Starmer, QC, now KC, a man who has served the British establishment well and continues to do so. A man who stabbed in the back the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, and who sabotaged his real possibility of becoming a very different kind of Prime Minister of a very different kind of Great Britain. Starmer stabbed him in the back. More fool Jeremy Corbyn for clutching this asp to his breast whilst pushing away his old friends, throwing them under the bus, preferring the company of this venomous creature, Keir Starmer, promoting him, promoting him again, all the while being stabbed in the back by him and by people like him. Since becoming leader of the opposition, he's kicked out Corbyn, out of the Labour Party, and decreed that Corbyn will never again stand as a Labour candidate, sit as a Labour member of Parliament. He's broken all 10 of his pre-election pledges. He has ruthlessly purged the Labour Party 
of anyone who could remotely be described as genuinely labor. He has promoted the very enemies of labor to the front ranks. But even all of that didn't prepare us for the level of his treachery over the genocide in Gaza. He long ago made clear that he was, and I quote, without equivocation, a supporter of Zionism, a supporter of Israel. He didn't hide that. What he did hide was that when Netanyahu, as a matter of deliberate and illegal policy, switched off the electricity, switched off the water, cut off the food, cut off the medicine, didn't allow any semblance of humanitarian aid into Gaza, that Keir Starmer would openly, publicly, on radio, on television, defend it. There's no getting away from that. That in refusing to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, Keir Starmer made himself utterly guilty of the war crimes of Benjamin Netanyahu the war crimes of starvation, the war crimes of famine, pestilence and disease, and the war crime of savage bombardment, which has eviscerated, turned into ash, tens of thousands of men, women, and children in the Gaza Strip. And until right now, he continues to do so. And therefore, the same as I said about the United States election holds true here. If you vote for Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, you've got blood on your hands too. You cannot, in conscience, vote for either of these two and think yourself innocent of the great crime that these two men and their two parties have been committing over these last three months nearly. So what are you going to do? Well, I'll be doing my best to give you an alternative as leader of the Workers' Party of Britain, but in the vast majority of constituencies and contests, we will not be present. We're too small, we're too impoverished. But there will be others. And so I say to you, vote for anybody but Starmer and Sunak. Anybody at all. Or go to the polling booth and spoil your ballot paper. Write none of the above. Put a big line through all of their names and parties. Ruin the parade. This parade of fake democracy, which our country, and likely your country, has already 
become. Vote for anybody except the war criminals or risk complicity in war crime yourself. It's the mother of all talk shows and have we got some brilliant reprise of some of the best interviews of 2023 coming your way. Stay tuned right now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. You're watching the New Year's Eve special edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows. I am completely live because, well, I celebrate very abstemiously on New Year's Eve, but I could hardly ask all my colleagues to do the same. One of the big stars of this crisis. Every war, every crisis throws up new leaders, brilliantly eloquent spokespeople uh, for justice, for right. But few of them are ever as erudite, eloquent, brilliant, dazzlingly brilliant as the young recording artist low-key turned out to be during this emergency. I have known him a very long time. As a matter of fact, I traveled to Gaza with him. He's known as a rapper, but that's a bit like saying Ronaldo is known as a footballer. He is, as a recording artist, as a stage performer of the very first class. But guess what? As a politician, as an advocate, as a man ready to put his activism to the nth degree, to the defense of the defenseless, to be the voice for the voiceless, low-key turned out to be a very high-key note member of the forces of justice. Here's my interview with him earlier this year. Low-key, thank you uh, for joining us. Let's talk about the British Parliament uh, tonight. Shall we? Uh, the Labour Party stands in uh, utter disgrace, terminal disgrace, perhaps. The government, not much uh, sturdier. What's your take? Well, what we have seen is even in Bethnal Green and Bow, the MP abstain from the vote for a ceasefire. And what I would say, George, 
is I think you are needed back there. Me and you stood together in Trafalgar Square. Me and you stood together in Gaza. And it is my hope and my dream that you and I will stand together in a liberated Jerusalem. Let's be clear. God willing. The British, the US, the EU, Israel and Japan are on the wrong side of history and the governments which represent those populations are in the minority. This Palestinian armed resistance is a right enshrined by UN Resolution 3246. The governments which designate Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism, the UK government supposedly represents 67 million people. The US government supposedly represents 340 million people. The government of Japan, the EU and Israel, that's less than a billion people represented by governments that not only do not believe in a ceasefire, but also deem Palestinian armed resistance to be terrorism. What about the government of Switzerland? Who is more neutral than the government of Switzerland? Because they don't define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. What about the government of Turkey? Several hundred million people it represents. They don't define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. What about the government of Venezuela? What about the government of Pakistan? What about the government of China? 1.4 billion people, 25% of humanity. They do not define Palestinian armed resistance as terrorism. The vast majority of humanity are represented by governments who see this situation in a far more clear way. The majority of people in the world understand themselves to be post-colonial subjects who emerged from colonialism, where decolonization was a positive process. These governments here are relics of the past. They don't believe all human life is equal. They don't believe that Palestinians are the same as any other people in the world. We are witnesses to a massive, massive crime here, George. Yes, uh, uh, and it's the fact that they pretend or act as if that was not the case, uh, that is uh, almost as galling as the crime itself. Uh, the, the television presenters who want to put interviewees on trial over something else entirely, instead of focusing on what they have seen, they must have seen with their own eyes. I, I mean, I've seen myself almost 5,000 children that have been killed in Gaza because I look at the images as they are produced. And these presenters, these members of parliament, they must have seen a significant number at least of these images. In what universe is it not a war crime to level a refugee camp in pursuit of one or even 10 people. In what universe is it not a war crime to bomb and then invade hospitals full of patients? Absolutely, and what's becoming clear is actually the Israeli military is the world's most cowardly army that has ever been. Not only are these soldiers used to bullying grandparents and children at checkpoints 
in El Khalil in Hebron or bullying teenagers in Jerusalem. They are used to striking from the air at civilian targets. They are used to sniping from the edge of Gaza at people and forcing them to be amputees for the rest of their life. Like Ibrahim Abu Thureya, who already did not have legs. And this man took part in the 2018 Great March of Return, which was Palestinians attempting to practice their right under UN Resolution 194, paragraph 11, and return home. And what happened to those people? They were snipered. That's what the Israeli military is used to. What it has proven is that in urban, hand-to-hand, street-to-street combat, they are useless. They are getting battered by the tens their tanks are going. But yet, they are still launching airstrikes on civilian targets. And the greatest shame of all for the British is there has been direct participation of the British. We don't know the extent of it yet. In years to come, it will come out. Direct participation of US special forces, the Delta Force on the ground, all for a war which primarily consists of fighting a non-state actor by bombing civilian locations in a concentration camp of Gaza. The blood is on all of their hands and we will never ever let them forget this. Let's uh, deal with this uh, concentration camp point. Uh, As Norman Finkelstein said on this show uh, a matter of a few days ago, it's actually moved beyond a concentration camp to a death camp. But let's talk about David Cameron. If we parse his sentence spoken as Prime Minister, it is the position of Britain's new Foreign Secretary, ipso facto, that Gaza was a prison camp, must not be allowed to continue to be a prison camp, that the free movement of goods and people both ways must be reinstated. It was actually rather a good statement made by David Cameron as Prime Minister. How does he get out of that now that he's Foreign Secretary in a government that is massacring people in that prison camp? Well, unfortunately, across the last few decades, George, we have seen the integration of British and Israeli intelligence services. So, for instance, the Foreign Office, which David Cameron will now be in charge of, uses hacking software from Celebrite, which is an Israeli intelligence company founded by alumni of Unit 8200 in Israel's uh, military. It is the equivalent of GCHQ. It spies on Palestinian electronic communications and then blackmails them on that basis. And Celebrite is not only used by the Foreign Office, it's also used by the British police. Another program used by the British police is Nice Systems, which is a subsidiary of Israel's largest um, arms company, Elbit Systems. So the question here is the extent to which a foreign Uh, Secretary of Britain will be able to act independently of Israeli diktats. You know, we can't forget the case of Alan Duncan, for example, when it was up the choice of him potentially being uh, foreign secretary. He found out, as you well know, George, that he was being lobbied against uh, relentlessly. And he wrote, actually, in his book, 
that the conservative friends of Israel think they control the foreign office, and they probably do. And of course, Alan Duncan, who was uh, decidedly tepid, you know, in, in, in our terms, this was somebody that, yes, he recognized Palestinian rights within the 67 borders, but this was not somebody who was significantly challenging uh, Israel's dominance. But even he was considered beyond the pale for the Israel lobbyists and actually, unfortunately, the British establishment. That doesn't mean that there isn't a contingent within the British establishment who is opposed to what Israel uh, does. There is. But it's, uh, I would say, shrinking by the day, unfortunately, though this situation has split our elites. It has split our um, media and political classes in ways that we must build on and work on going forward, for sure. It's one thing being uh, a satrap, uh, a pet dog uh, for the United States of America. But, you know, to go from once ruling the waves and having the biggest empire the world has ever seen to being a satrap of Israel is, uh, is uh, d diminishing and degrading indeed. But that's what's happened, isn't it? You've mentioned the intelligence tie-up. But we've also got a secret military agreement with Israel, uh, the terms of which have never been divulged. And what might be in those dozens of British military planes that are flying almost daily now to Tel Aviv? We'll never know. No one can find out. What kind of democracy is that? Absolutely. And it comes down to a question of sovereignty. How can Britain claim to have sovereignty when the very company which handles the data of the Ministry of Defense, Oracle, is led by Larry Ellison, who is the largest donor to the Friends of the IDF charity in its history. He is somebody that alongside its CA, C, uh, CEO, Safra Katz, an Israeli uh, woman, claim that their company um, puts Israel's um, security second to none and that their employees can find another employee if uh, another employer, if they have a problem with it. In addition to that, you have to remember that uh, Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle, which is the company that handles the Ministry of Defense's data, offered Netanyahu the directorship of the company, meaning that Netanyahu could have been the director of the company which handles the data of the British Ministry of Defense, the British Home Office, the British Foreign Office, and even the NHS. So really, you are talking about sovereignty as a, a non-existent concept when it comes to Britain today. Not only do we have 12,000 US soldiers on this soil, but also, as you've made clear, we have this secret military agreement with Israel, which... Um, implies God know what, God knows what. And unfortunately, these 33 plus flights that have gone throughout this period of time, I would say you could be forgiven for thinking that Britain is a direct participant in the bombing. We know that there's the British spy plane above occupied Palestine. What is that helping the Israelis with? We are in a serious bind here as a state. Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time as always, uh, what do you think the effect or impact will be uh, on Keir Starmer, his leadership, on the Labour Party? They've already shed uh, the, the love, if not the voting allegiance, we'll have to wait and see about that, uh, of uh, millions of people in Britain 
over their stance on this. Now they've had to sack uh, or, uh, or have resigned 10 uh, of uh, the Labour front bench. Where's all that going, do you think? Ultimately, what we need is a movement to push these Labour MPs who have for so long really existed in safe seats. So they've seen it as completely um, inconceivable that they could be voted out of their constituencies because of how, uh, um, how much the Tories are a toxic brand in these particular communities. But what needs to happen is individuals like Wes Streeting, who has his office costs in Ilford paid for by key Israel lobbyist Lord Mendelssohn and also his office costs paid for by key Israel lobbyist Trevor Chin. They need to pay a significant price in the voting uh, box and they need to lose their seats. We need to see Keir Starmer, who betted on breaking the back of support for Palestine to secure his leadership, seeing the support for Palestine breaking the back of his leadership. That's what needs to happen next. And we need you back in Parliament. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, I've known Scott Ritter for, well, coming up for 25 years. I worked with him to try and stop the disaster that became uh, the uh, war and the occupation of Iraq. He always struck me as a conservative sort of gentleman, a typically American military man. He opposed the war on Iraq because of inexorable logic. He knew as a United Nations weapons inspector, he knew as a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, that the politicians were lying through their teeth. And so he, as an honorable military officer, could not follow them in this. As it turned out, the development, the political development of Scott Ritter did not stop with his opposition to the war in Iraq. He emerged as one of the most powerful opponents, with all his military expertise of the NATO war against Russia, and latterly, uh, the NATO-Israel war against the Palestinian people in Gaza. I interviewed him three times in the course of 2023. This was the middle of the three. And at the end of that interview, I declared that that interview would live long. And so, indeed, it did. Take a look. He's the unimpeachable source of truth about war in the world today. And I'm very glad he's regularly here on the Mother of All Talk Show. Scott Ritter, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start with, uh, with Gaza. Uh, but I also want to talk to you about uh, Ukraine. I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Ukraine. Uh, we we spent a few hundred billion dollars on it, but it's disappeared from the news agenda. And I want to ask you why and what's happening there. But let's uh, let's start with the Iwo Jima moment. 
uh, or the Reichstag uh, Soviet flag moment uh, when Israeli soldiers, having conquered the Al-Shifa hospital, climbed up onto the roof and planted their flag there. An ignominious moment, an ignominious end to a quite atrocious set of war crimes and crimes against humanity. At least that's how I see it. How about you? Absolutely. Look, the, the Israeli Defense Force has brought nothing but shame to it uh, for during the course of this entire campaign. Um, let's, let's just be straight up honest. Uh, they were beat in a stand-up fight on October 7th by Hamas, and they were humiliated. And that humiliation is carried over into this operation that's taking place. This operation has very little to do with actually trying to accomplish legitimate military objectives and everything to do with exacting revenge on a helpless Palestinian people, because that's what Israel is up against. Uh, you know, Hamas, after carrying out what I call the most successful military raid this century, because it wasn't an act of terrorism. What Hamas did on October 7th was a classic military raid with classic military objectives, and they accomplished them all. Then they withdrew to prepared positions. That's the final act of a raid. Their prepared positions have to be happen to be underground, um, as they are wont to be, if you want to survive with Israeli air supremacy, etc. Um, and Israel has gone into Gaza knowing that they're not going to close with and destroy the Hamas enemy through firepower maneuver in classic military terms, that they're going to instead carry out collective punishment against the citizens of Gaza, the innocent Palestinian people. And um, they're not even hiding it now. In addition to these horrific visuals, I mean, you know, raising the flag over a hospital. Really? Look, I come from an organization whose defining moment is characterized by Marines raising the flag on Mount Suribachi. Of the 250 Marines that went up that mountain, 27 lived. 27 out of 250, because it was a real war, a real war. We earned the right to plant that flag on Mount Suribachi. These Israelis that put the flag above the Al-Shifa hospital, they should be ashamed of themselves. I hope that their pictures are taken, that their faces are recognized and broadcast around the world. So wherever they go to try and get somebody to buy them a beer for being a man, for raising the flag, instead people will spit in their face because that's all they deserve if they can walk out of Gaza alive because this battle ain't over yet. Hamas is still there. There's a lot of fighting left. George, I don't want to sound like I'm glorifying war. I'm not. My ideal solution right now is a ceasefire that brings an end to this conflict, gets, gets the Israeli troops out of Gaza, gets peacekeeper troops in Gaza, and gets humanitarian supplies to the people that so desperately need it so that the international community can get, begin the business of talking about how do we make sure that this never happens again. That should be everybody's priority. It should have been Israel's priority on October 8th. Not to say how do we exact revenge how do we prevent this from happening again? How do we prevent an October 7th from ever happening again? Because everything that's transpired since October 7th has turned international opinion away from Israel. Had Israel taken a different stance on October 8th, a stance that said, we understand why this happened, this is painful for us, but we need now to recognize that the Palestinian people 
have to have a homeland. The only way to disarm Hamas is to give the Palestinian people a homeland. And then Hamas loses its right, its need for militancy. But that's not what Israel's doing. They claim they're trying to defeat Hamas. But understand this, Hamas isn't just fighters to be killed. It's an idea. It's an ideology that has taken root now. If you wanted to kill Hamas, Israel, you're doing the exact worst thing because Hamas now is being embraced by people who never would have embraced Hamas. The idea of Palestinian statehood is now mainstream like it's never been before. George, this is the greatest defeat Israel has ever suffered, and they don't know it yet. How much revenge uh, will satisfy uh, Netanyahu? Uh, It's 11,000 dead now, 74.5% of them women, children, and elderly people. Uh, Is 22,000 dead, 52,000 dead? Uh, How many dead uh, will it take to satisfy that thirst for revenge? Because you're right, they cannot, even Israel cannot kill 2.3 million people. Uh, Even our brain-dead politicians could not stand by whilst 2.3 million people were killed. So the killing is going to have to stop short of killing every Palestinian. The question is now, how far short? Well, the problem is, George, and you know this, the Israeli government has been hijacked by literally this criminal right-wing element that is imbued with a notion of Israel that nobody in the world supports, nobody in the world can support. The notion of a greater Israel, an Eretz Israel, one that has no Palestinian people. You know, Hamas... And, I, and again, I understand, but is condemned for, you know, from the river to the sea, because people interpret that as anti-Semitic. You want to annihilate the Jewish population. But you know who invented it, George? You know who invented it. The Likud Party invented it. It's the original motto yeah. of the Likud Party. From the river to the sea, no Palestinians there will be. That's their theme. That's what they do. And now they have a government that is bringing this to life. So when you say how many, George, all, they want them all gone, every single one of them, and they're not even hiding it now. These rabbis are preaching to the troops, saying, get them all, kill them all, get rid of them all. The Israeli government is talking about getting them all out of Gaza, driving them out somewhere. They don't care because they don't view the Palestinians as humans. I mean, this is the worst aspect of what's going on here. Politics is tough. You know that. You're a politician. Um, and, And sometimes people take hard stands and bad things are done. But this isn't politics, George. This is hate. This is pure, unadulterated hatred. And what kills me, what kills me is no matter how you feel about Hamas, no matter how you feel about Hamas, you have to understand that you can't embrace an action undertaken by Israel that dehumanizes an entire people. The Israelis are not crying about the babies, George. The Israelis are not crying about the women. They're definitely not crying about the men. They don't care. They've hardened themselves to the point where they no longer view the Palestinians as humans. And as so long as your government and my government have this see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil approach about Israel, where Israel is 
cannot be criticized. The killing will continue. The only way this stops is when our politicians demand that it stops, but we so far don't seem to have an upper limit, which speaks volumes, speaks volumes about the people whom we have put in office. You know, we are democracies, George. We elect people to represent us. And if those people truly represent us, it doesn't say much about us collectively as Americans and British because we're standing by. Yes, we fill the streets with people demonstrating. And I applaud everybody who went out to demonstrate. But we need to step it up. And I'm not talking about violence, George. I'm not, I, I'm all in on the nonviolent thing nowadays uh, because war only begets death and destruction. I've learned that hard lesson. I'm about not going to war. But we need to find a way to send a signal to these people. Where is corporate America? Where are the donors? Where are the people that give money to the politicians that get them into office? Why aren't they calling up? Why aren't we calling them saying, hey, you do a business that allows you to make money, to donate money to a politician? You don't do business anymore, pal, until you get on the phone and you say, stop the killing in Gaza. That's what we have to do. We have to stop it now. Every day we don't do this, George. You know what's going on. Hundreds of Palestinians are dying, but we stopped caring. Yeah. Once you see those photographs, you become immune to those photographs. And that's what's happened. It's a, it's a bloodlust exhaustion where we have seen so much horror. It's filled our eyes and filled our minds that we become numb to it. We can't become numb to it. We should cry ourselves to sleep every night in shame, collective shame, about what's happening in our names. Because this isn't an Israeli crime, George. This is an American crime. This is a British crime. This is a European crime. This is a global crime. Every human being on this planet is guilty of killing these people because we're not doing anything to stop them. The damn Arabs and Muslims met in Riyadh and didn't do a damn thing. Excuse my language. I apologize using French on your show, but they didn't do anything, George. Nothing. They talked, talked, talked talked, but when they had the chance to use the one weapon that could actually turn the tide, the oil weapon, they wouldn't even consider it because money is more important than blood, apparently. Wow. Well, that uh, soliloquy will live long, I predict. Let me uh, ask you to, if you will, segue uh, to that war that everyone's now forgotten about. Uh, the one that completely dominated uh, more than a year of our lives, filled all the information space, got people banned and suppressed and, and, uh, and censored, and uh, you and me uh, among them. Uh, that war that was so important that we must uh, impoverish our economies to influence the outcome, must uh, pony up hundreds of billions of dollars to keep going. What's happened to that war? George, uh, about a month ago, I did an interview with a um, uh, Ukrainian journalist. Uh, she's from the, the Donbass, uh, but you know she's ethnic Russian, but Ukrainian, and a lot of connections with the Ukrainian community. And I told her straight up, I said, you do understand that no one in the West likes you. No one cares about you. That don't don't misinterpret our willingness to give you money and equipment and everything. All we're using you as is a tool to hurt Russia. 
but we don't care about the price you pay. We care nothing about you collectively or as a people. And when the time comes, we will drop you just like we drop everybody else. You know, for decades, we spoke about how important it was to be in Afghanistan. If we don't fight them over there, George, we have to fight them here. This is the most important. This is an existential struggle. This defines who and what we are collectively. This fight in Afghanistan, then bam, gone. Overnight, finished. We don't even talk about Afghanistan anymore. And we should because of the horrors that we've inflicted on those people that continue to this day. But we've forgotten about them because we never really cared about them, George. We don't care about the Ukrainian people. And what's happened right now is we have found a brighter laser beam to chase. You know how you take a kitten in a room and you shine the laser beam on the wall and the cat gets distracted? We just got distracted by the Israeli laser beam. And we ain't coming back to Ukraine. This was a losing proposition for a long time. Politically, it was difficult to acknowledge it, but now we've Israel has provided political cover for people to say, well, we have a bigger priority, especially in the United States. It's over for Ukraine, George. Now, when I say over, understand, and I and I point this out to everybody. You know, in World War II, the United States, we lost a lot of guys. Not anywhere near what the Soviet Union lost, but we lost a lot of guys. The bloodiest month for the American army in Europe, the bloodiest month wasn't the Battle of the Bulge, wasn't Normandy wasn't the battle for France. It was April 1945, after it was all over, because the Germans still fought. They went down kicking and screaming. They fought for every inch. And we lost more men in April 1945 than we lost in any other month in the war. And the reason why I bring that up is people can look at the violence that's going on right now between the Russians and Ukrainian. It's still a very violent war. I've just interviewed a couple guys from the front line, and the stories they tell will bring you to tears. But Russia has won this war. The war is over. It's fundamentally over. It's strategically over. The military math cannot be reversed by Ukraine. They are simply burning through manpower and equipment at a far greater rate than it can be replenished. And now the United States is turning off the spigot. They're down to about 2% left of the available funding, and Congress isn't in any rush to give them any more money. Germany has ponied up a great big $8 billion dollar package that uh, includes 10 old tanks. I mean, again, I feel sorry because 10 old tanks equates into 50 dead Ukrainians, five men per tank. The tanks will be destroyed. That's it. But we don't care. We never have cared about Ukraine. And that's the fact. We are going to wake up sometime in the near future to find that Russia has determined the outcome of this war on terms that are acceptable to Russia, that they will dictate these terms to a defeated Ukrainian state, and the West will have no say whatsoever in this outcome. And then we will have to pray that the Russia is the Russia that I believe it is, not a vengeful Russia, not a Russia looking for expansion, but a Russia that will turn to the difficult task of rebuilding that which has been destroyed by this horrible war and looking to find some way to get a new European security framework in place between Europe and Russia so such a war never happens again. But, George, this this war is over. It's tragic. I feel sorry for the Ukrainian people because we sold them a bill of goods. And every, and the, you know, the United States has a huge role to play here. But Boris Johnson's the guy that kept this war going. This war could have ended on 1 April. There could have been a, tr a peace treaty signed between Russia and Ukraine on 1 April that gave Ukraine all of its territory except Crimea. 
400,000 Ukrainian men would be alive today. 20 million Ukrainians would have homes that don't that don't exist today. Millions of children, and we understand the importance of education and stability for the education for the future of these children. These children are permanently displaced now. Their future is ruined. Um, this is all on Boris Johnson. This is on the British people. This is on the United States. This is on the American people. This is on Europe. We are all guilty of condemning the Ukrainian nation to decades, decades of pain and suffering. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. In a sane United States of America, Chris Lynn Hedges would be in the White House. He'd either be the president himself or he'd be coming up from Foggy Bottom as Secretary of State to brief the president on the latest developments in international affairs. He really is that good. Although with Anthony Blinken in that post, you might be forgiven for thinking I'm insulting Chris Hedges. Very far from it. Anuam, when he was head of the International Bureau, the Foreign uh, uh, Bureau of the New York Times. He's an expert in the Middle East, He's an expert on Iraq. He's an expert on Israel-Palestine. He's an expert on international affairs. And he's not in the White House. And the rest of the world is poorer for it. I interviewed Chris Hedges many times over the course of the last few years. This is one of the best of them. Take a look. Let's start uh, in Gaza, uh, Chris. We've both been across this course many times before, uh, but there's a particular frenzy and scale uh, to the current uh, slaughter, uh, even by comparison with previous ones, wouldn't you say? Yes, it really at this point rivals the massive ethnic cleansing campaigns of 1948 and 1949, when 750,000 Palestinians were pushed from their homes, a series of massacres, Darius seen, hundreds of Palestinians killed, including many women and children. Again, a ma another massive ethnic cleansing campaign in 1967, when Israel seized what was left of independent Palestinian territory, about 22% of Palestinian land in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, uh, it rivals that in terms of its brutality. Uh, the noises out of Jerusalem on the part of the Netanyahu government, as well as the long calls for the removal of Palestinians, not only from uh, the West Bank and Gaza, but from inside Israel, the Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. Uh, that has been a central tenant of many of the senior ministers in this far-right government, the most extreme government in Israel's history. Uh, the I don't think the word genocide at this point is inappropriate. Uh, cutting off food, water, uh, uh, medicine, fuel. Uh, hospitals now are on the cusp of some have already shut down. Uh, I mean, this is just absolutely appalling. And of course, what's even more appalling is the complicity of the international community, or let's call the certainly Washington and Europe. Uh, Washington, as the Biden administration has vetoed, as you know, the uh, calls for ceasefire, even a pause 
uh, to get supplies in. Uh, it, it's really absolutely stunning. Uh, and I think it's clear that either all or part of the Gaza Strip will be bombed into rubble. Uh, the, the northern area, the area where 1.1 million Palestinians have had to evacuate is being uh, smashed, pounded day in and day out. I was in Sarajevo during the war. We were being hit with about three or 400 shells a day, uh, but the numbers of dead and wounded uh, were nothing, uh, such as we see in Gaza, hundreds, 500 a day, 700 a day, uh, and then thousands of wounded. Of course, we have to always remember that half of the residents in Gaza, roughly 2.2, 2.3 million people, over half of them are children. So it's, I, I'm, I'm uh, like you, uh, you know, extremely upset as somebody who spent, I spent seven years covering Gaza, months of my life in Gaza, but I'm also just, it's jaw dropping on the part of Washington and European capitals as they sit there uh, and do nothing uh, in front of this slaughter. Indeed, if you try and speak out against it, you're censored. Uh, you're, you're, you're attacked as an anti-Semite. Uh, and I mean, we've gone from the absurdity of uh, criticizing Israel as a form of anti-Semitism to criticizing genocide as a form of anti-Semitism. We'll come to uh, the Western governments in a minute, but let's uh, try and drill down on the Netanyahu government itself and on the political situation in the country. Before this happened, uh, Netanyahu was in a considerable degree of trouble. Uh, there were mass demonstrations every Saturday night against uh, him, and almost all of the liberal chattering classes in the West were behind those demonstrations and calling for Netanyahu to, uh, to step down. And now, uh, with one uh, leap, uh, he's free uh, with uh, a blank check in his pocket uh, from uh, these uh, same Western governments that wanted rid of him just a few weeks ago. Uh, is this frenzy of violence uh, connected to the instability, insecurity uh, of the Netanyahu government? I would say it's connected to the incompetence of the Netanyahu government. Uh, remember, they moved significant numbers of troops over to the West Bank uh, to protect settlers uh, who were having, I think, a Purim festival or some kind of festival in the West Bank. So the, the whole border area along Gaza was unmanned, basically, by soldiers. It's why Hamas fighters so easily entered uh, military outposts all up and down uh, the security barrier that Israel uh, had built, uh, and uh, and then of course a huge intelligence failure. So uh, they didn't even see it coming. This massive incursion. Uh, so I would say it's it's rooted in the gross incompetence in on the part of the Netanyahu government, who now is polling, by the way, at about twenty two percent. But the uh, attacks by the Hamas fighters have essentially given license. Now, you mentioned the demonstrations against Netanyahu. It's important to remember that none of those protesters were calling for equal rights for Palestinians. The Palestinians had been completely erased from their consciousness. And you know, seven years in and out of Gaza, 
uh, it became apparent to all of us who were reporting that you can't. I mean, these people have been locked inside this concentration camp, let's call it for what it is, for 22 years. Many of those fighters who burst through those barriers had never been outside of Gaza their entire life. And you can't, and this was a theme that we kept reporting, although we were ignored, you can't brutalize these people week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, and not expect uh, a response. I'm not defending it, uh, but but we have to understand it. Um, to understand is not to condone. Uh, it was completely predictable. And, and this was Netanyahu's policy. After the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, we, Oslo is another issue, whether it would have worked or not. I knew Rabin. I covered him, actually, no Bibi. And, uh, uh, but, but there was an attempt on the part of Rabin and his government to reach some kind of accommodation through Oslo with the removal of Rabin. And Bibi is a creation of the Israel lobby in the United States, funded massively by AIPAC. In fact, when he was running against Rabin, uh, all sorts of American campaign advisors were there uh, demonizing Rabin. Rabin at, at Bibi Netanyahu's rallies, Rabin was being dressed up in effigy. There was an effigy of Rabin in a Nazi uniform. And then, of course, one of Bibi's followers assassinated Rabin. But at that point, it snuffed out any attempt at accommodation. And Bibi and the far right, their policy was grind them under their boot. So even when they had in the March of Return 2018, you had nonviolent Gandhian-like protests, people approaching the fence and being gunned down by Israeli snipers. And many of those who were targeted, as you know, were medics, uh, were press, uh, quite consciously. And I've been in a lot of war. You, When you look through a sniper scope, you can see the face of the person that you obliterate, which is why I don't buy in to now what Israel admits is the quote-unquote accidental death of Shireen Abu Akhla from Al Jazeera. Uh, so this is a complete backfiring uh, or, or a complete collapse of the Netanyahu doctrine of crush them, uh, mow the lawn, as they say, periodically just bomb and shell Gaza. Remember, we're talking about attacking uh, a people in Gaza that has no army, no navy, no air force, no uh, artillery units, no mechanized units, no command and control. I really bristle at the idea of the word war. Uh, this isn't a war. This is indiscriminate slaughter. Uh, I am perfectly willing to condemn uh, Hamas's rockets, uh, Islamic uh, Palestine, Islamic Jihad, those rockets into Israel as a war crime because they're indiscriminate. I'm even willing to condemn the killing of civilians by Hamas as a war crime. But if you really want to get uh, cold-blooded and tally up the numbers, uh, the, uh, Israel's uh, killing f dwarfs anything that Hamas has been able to do, including, of course, this attack that left 1,400 Israelis dead. So, uh, you know, wh where is it going to go? I think that, uh, I, you know, there's a, there are reports that Israel will flood the tunnels rather than trying to fight within them. Uh, but that, of course, would kill all the hostages. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, exclude it as an Israeli policy. Uh, they, they have sacrificed throughout their history. Hostages, hostage takers in the past uh, have been slaughtered along with the hostages. Uh, there are some reports that out of the kibbutzim, uh, this may have been what happened, uh, that they in fact were not killed by Hamas, but they, the Israeli IDF went in there and obliterated these houses where Israelis were being held hostage. I don't know. I'm not on the ground. I'm not reporting it. 
but it certainly fits with my own coverage of Israel. And we have seen cases where Israeli soldiers have been seized by Hamas, taken into Gaza, and rather than rescue those soldiers, they just obliterate the entire spot, killing hundreds of people along with a soldier uh, where, where they're being held. Let's turn to these Western governments then. Uh, um, we, we, we know about war. We also know about politicians. Uh, politicians in countries that have elections uh, usually have to be sensitive to what appear to be uh, movements in public opinion. It uh, would seem to me uh, undeniable that in virtually all, if not all, uh, Western countries... Uh, there has been a massive movement uh, of public sympathy for the Palestinian people, accentuated uh, rapidly over the last 17 days by uh, social media pictures and footage, uh, which uh, is difficult to look at, especially for people like you and me who know uh, these families, who know these towns and villages. Uh, but uh, those who are looking at these pictures and videos are being moved. And you can see that. You can feel that. And yet your government and my government uh, are uh, absolutely ironclad, uh, side by side uh, with uh, Netanyahu. What's that all about? Money. <laughs> They're bought off. Uh, you know, the Israel lobby and uh, Al Jazeera did a great series of both on the UK and the US, the, the, it was an undercover reporter who reported that actually the UK investigation got aired. The, the Israel lobby blocked, Israel blocked the, the uh, broadcasting of the uh, investigation into the Israel lobby in the United States. Pirated versions were put up on electronic intifada and other sites. And it's certainly worth watching because it just shows how captive the American political class is to the money uh, that is poured into their campaigns. Uh, and then also they will use those resources to take down candidates. Cynthia McKinney would be a good example that get up uh, and criticize Israeli war crimes. Uh, Rashida Talid, who is of Palestinian descent, has been a target of the Israel lobby every time she runs. And, and we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. So these governments are not responsive in any way to public opinion. They're not responsive to international law. Uh, they're not responsive to genocide, this insane book that Samantha Power wrote, A Problem from Hell, where the U.S. suddenly is held up as the uh, country that should intervene, these humanitarian interventionists uh, who brought us the wars in the Middle East and brought us the war, the, you know, the breakdown of Libya and Syria and everywhere else, uh, and of course have fueled the insanity in the Ukraine, are completely silent. Now, I mean, and the, and the genocidal campaign on the part of Israel is far greater uh, in terms of magnitude, daily magnitude, than anything the Russians have done uh, or anything that uh, any of these regimes, Gaddafi, I knew Gaddafi, I think you did too, any of these regimes in the Middle East did. So the hypocrisy is rank. And uh, and it's, it's, it's the, I mean, the fundamental problem is the Palestinians don't have power and they're virtually friendless. And the Middle East regimes are very two-faced about their support for the Palestinian. It's skin deep. Uh, there's, of course, strong resentment towards Israel and what it's doing, as there should be. Uh, and that has seen uh, King Abdullah, who I also knew his father very well, went to school with King Abdullah. Uh, so uh, 
they have to respond. But these people are essentially lackeys of Western countries, in particular the United States. Uh, Jordan would be a good example of that. In Saudi Arabia, they'll make the right noises, but have long, uh, the, the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has long betrayed the Palestinians. Uh, so they're really friendless, powerless, and because of that, they are being slaughtered en masse in, and, and have, we're, we're talking about no water, running out of water, uh, running out of uh, food, fuel, you can't uh, pump water. Uh, I mean, water's always been a problem, as you know, in Gaza, even before, because the Israelis in both the West Bank and Gaza siphon off the aquifers. So uh, clean drinking water, it was a huge issue even before this attack. Uh, and and uh, uh, th there's just, there are very, very few, there may be volunteers from Iraq we hear, and uh, they're the, the only real alliances they have are with Hezbollah um, on the northern border of uh, Israel and Lebanon and Iran and Syria. But of course, the, the, they talk about a wider war. Well, that's already begun. Israel has carried out two, two airstrikes against the uh, airports in uh, Damascus and Aleppo. Uh, in order to prevent su supplies, military supplies, getting to Hezbollah. Um, how far will this go? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, once you be open that Pandora's box of war, and I spent 20 years covering conflicts all over the globe, you don't control it. It controls you. Uh, so this could go horribly wrong in terms of a regional conflict. Uh, but I the myopia of the Netanyahu government. I mean, look, they're calling Palestinians Nazis. Uh, this is just utter insanity. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't see it. I mean, if the U.S. wants a pause on the invasion because they want to get their uh, air defense missile systems in place, uh, uh, fearing assaults, uh, quite correctly, there already have been assaults on American bases in Iraq and Syria. And that could become more serious. But this really could go, you know, if, if Israel starts striking deep within Lebanon, Lebanon has quite an arsenal of missiles that, I mean, let's be clear, these rockets from Palestinians are, they're kind of fireworks. I mean, they, they, uh, they're they lethal, but in a, to, to a very small degree, they're very inaccurate. Uh, but that's not true with the missile capability of Hezbollah that could really target infrastructure within Israel and cause quite a bit of damage. And then if that begins to happen, there's no telling. Remember, Israel is the one nuclear power within the Middle East. Do they drop a, uh, you know, some kind of nuclear device on Iran? I mean, none of that is out of the realm of possibility, given the, uh, you know, demented uh, figures within the Netanyahu cabinet who all come out of that old Kahana, Kahana, Mayor Kahana was a a far-right rabbi. He was in Israel when I was there and uh, was actually banned because of his extremism. But these people are all the children of Kahana. Does, how does this all play into the election season in the United States? Uh, there's bipartisanship in your country and in mine. So no one party is going to take advantage. Uh, but my one candidate or other uh, break from the pack uh, and uh, and seek to uh, use the current real grave danger of a wider regional war with the American Navy right in the middle of it. I doubt it. I mean, you have read Bobby Kennedy. He's 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 uh, repeating every talking point of the far right. The only 
candidate uh, is my friend Cornell West, but you know he has no real traction, political traction. Uh, no, the the the, it, and you have to look at the media coverage in the United States, which is slavishly pro-Israel and uh, gives voice to Israeli victims. I, I, as a reporter, those victims should be heard, but so should the Palestinian victims, uh, which uh, there's a kind of a very uh, marginal or superficial attempt to acknowledge a Palestinian voice so it's not uh, completely ignored and, and, and the, the bias is not completely exposed. Uh, but the 90 plus, 95 percent plus of the coverage is essentially Israeli propaganda and the two parties, but the, the ruling class uh, the, the, within the two parties is essentially uh, completely backing up uh, the Israelis, in fact, doing their dirty work uh, to prevent a ceasefire. Well, that's the thing I find the most staggering, that the Biden administration, it ha which has the capacity to pressure Israel because we're a huge arms supporter, uh, $3 billion a year in arms, uh, and of course now more arms because the, the stocks of the Israelis are being depleted. It has the power to stop it, and it won't. Ukraine, remember that? Uh, <laughs> the ease with which they have turned the page is uh, is quite bewildering. I mean, uh, well, Ukraine feels like Ukraine a decade ago well. instead Ukraine's of two weeks ago. Yeah, but Ukraine's a disaster. It is a complete disaster, as many of us who, you know, have covered war understood. It's a complete stalemate. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, what, what's happening is the Ukrainian is, you know, uh, Ukrainians are essentially bleeding to death. Their country is being destroyed for U.S. global interests, which is the isolation of Putin and, and the de degradation or degrading the Russian army. But it's that was completely predictable. So, yeah, of course. They, and, and, you know, even before October 7th, the coverage in the United States of Ukraine had significantly dropped off because it wasn't good news. Uh, it, without cheerleading for the valiant Ukrainians who were about to, uh, you know, push the Russian empire back over the border, it didn't really work anymore, given the facts on the ground, which even the media couldn't cover up. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, some of the most remarkable people uh, from the intelligence apparatus of the United States have emerged as the most pungent, cogent critics of United States foreign and military policy over the last few years and have thus become unlikely friends of the mother of all talk shows. One such is undoubtedly Colonel Douglas McGregor. Long, long ago, his people must have been compatriots of mine with a name like his. But I suppose that they are the twain parted because Colonel McGregor was a big figure in US military and diplomatic circles. He was slated to be an ambassador under President Donald Trump. The stolen election of 2020 got in the way of that. But he's a man of independent mind. He's a man who allows the facts, logic, reason to dictate his political course. He is not someone 
who's starry-eyed about anybody or anything. He deploys a cold military logic to his evaluation of circumstances and challenges. So I became his unlikely Scottish friend over the course of the last 12 months. Colonel Douglas McGregor was our well-received guest on this show. And as a Scotsman, why shouldn't he join me on Hogmanay? This is the best of Colonel Douglas McGregor. Take a look. Welcome, uh, Colonel, to the uh, mother of all talk shows. Uh, I'll talk about your new role in a minute, but as you survey the headlines of the top people's papers, hasn't quite filtered down to uh, the news they give to the masses yet, but all the top people's papers, all the top people's fora, uh, are all now preparing each other and ultimately they'll have to prepare us, the public, for a cataclysmic Russian victory in Ukraine. You predicted this all along. Do you feel vindicated? I'd feel better about it if this had ended earlier and fewer Ukrainians and Russians had lost their lives in what is really a pointless conflict that never needed to happen. It's true, isn't it, that uh, every death since the Ankara uh, initialed draft peace agreement has in a sense been a death that our governments, yours and mine, bear responsibility for, because this could all have been over when hundreds of thousands of people that are dead today would still have been alive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if anything, I would describe this as a Washington vanity project. Lots of people in Washington, supported by friends in London and some other European capitals, decided that uh, they had an opportunity to destroy Russia and that they would use Ukraine for that purpose. And they'd been building up to this for many, many years not just the eight years before the war broke out, but actually even earlier, which helps to explain the coup that, that occurred and the installation of the Zelensky government later on. All of it was, was fantasy. It made no sense. All the underlying assumptions were wrong. Uh, and the usual suspects in the Department of Defense, all of your retired generals and active generals, very few of whom ever had any practical military experience and seldom, if ever, bothered to study their professions, all jumped on the bandwagon predicting imminent victory for Ukraine. And everyone lied pro prolifically and with great uh, convincing uh, rhetoric day after day that the Russians were awful, they were losing, they had no chance to win. They still haven't admitted the truth, which is uh, we're looking at roughly half a million dead Ukrainian soldiers. This evening I heard a retired uh, general say, well, perhaps 125,000. <laughs> well, that's a that's a fraction of what we know has happened. And he's still trying to make the argument that if we just spend more money and send more equipment, Ukraine will triumph. In reality, the Russians are advancing deliberately, but slowly. I think the, Mr. Putin is looking for a negotiating partner among the European states. He's not interested in marching to the Polish border. But as I keep telling everyone, if we're stupid enough to refuse to negotiate, if we won't bring this stupid and pointless war to an end, not only will we destroy the Ukrainian nation, but we'll end up moving Russian forces that much further towards the West, which I thought was the uh, very thing we wanted to avoid. 
as well as the massive expansion of the Russian armed forces. They are now mammoth, very well-staffed, brilliantly officered, well-led, well-equipped. This is not what we set out to achieve. So does that make our leaders fools or knaves? Uh, Fools because they didn't see what you and I could see, uh, or knaves because they could see it uh, and did it anyway? I think it's probably a little of both. I mean, we've always had a problem. You you have in Great Britain and we in the United States with senior military and political leaders who tended to be persuaded by wishful thinking that things were true that were not. This is simply another example. And uh, you add to that uh, corruption and greed and arrogance. I think the arrogance in Washington is at an all-time high. One would think after the decades of failure, military and strategic and, and political And given the state of our economy and the financial system, everyone would have developed some measure of humility. Nothing could be further from the truth. No one will admit the truth. Everyone insists on the lie, and the arrogance continues. It's very disturbing and entirely true also on this side of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, He had a bad Tuesday, Zelensky, uh, in Washington. But one of our correspondents has just briefed us that He had a better Wednesday. He had all the brass out there to greet him, and Lloyd Austin booming nine different pledges in one minute, 45 seconds. What happened? Well, I think uh, he thought that he had access to the Epstein tapes and he was going to present those to President Biden and his colleagues and tell them he was going to release them if they didn't support him. Doesn't seem to have worked. (laughs) Maybe the tapes weren't good enough. Didn't have enough people on them. I, I don't know. The generals are just waiting around to retire and uh, pick up lucrative contracts with the defense industry. So they're performing not just for their political sponsors that advanced them to senior rank. They're performing for their future bosses and the shareholders, reassuring them that they can sell anything that they produce to anyone. Whether we win or lose doesn't make any difference. And apparently they've got a point. But I think this is going to be tough to conceal. The rest of the world knows what has happened, Mr. Galloway, and what has happened is very clear. Not only has this Western-trained Ukrainian force failed miserably for reasons that are not entirely its fault, but because of the way we trained it, organized it, and equipped it. In addition to that, our technology has failed miserably. Our advice has been appalling. I mean, if you, you know, in retrospect, I'm, I'm surprised uh, President Putin hasn't offered to reimburse London and Washington for the cost of sending all the retired generals over there to advise them because they've been his greatest assets. It's been stupidity on stilts, an unwillingness to see how profoundly warfare has changed, a desire to see Russians as mediocre and subhuman. It's outrageous nonsense. It was never true. And now, as you know, I'm sure you're aware, We've poisoned the well with Russia for at least a decade or more. I can't imagine why the Russians would pay any attention to anything we say. Everything we've told them was a lie. Everything we've done has been aimed at subverting them and alienating them. And I think that's a serious mistake. I I hope we can get a new generation of political leaders in there that can turn it around. But that's, in my judgment, the worst part. And the rest of the world now knows we're weak. And I think that weakness is uh, going to be on display increasingly in the future, and I would include in that the Middle East. We are not the power we were 30 years ago. We're not even close. 
Uh, well, undoubtedly, and I was speaking earlier, I was in the UAE when President Putin arrived. Uh, you could see, you could feel, it's palpable, uh, the extent to which uh, the uh, formerly, well, to say the least, friends and allies uh, of uh, the West have begun to reorientate towards the East. Um, insofar as we struggled mightily to lift a huge stone, we really have dropped it on our own feet, haven't we? Russia is stronger and richer. Russia is stronger and militarily more powerful. Its prestige has grown. Its armed forces now tried and tested. Uh, it's a thoroughgoing disaster, all this. And the leaders who led us into it really ought to pay a price if democracy means anything. Well, you've got to get people informed. And this is something that's acutely lacking in the United States. If you ask most Americans, what are you doing tonight? They're looking for the latest football game. They're trying to find out who Taylor Swift is going to date next week. If you ask them about what's happening in the Middle East, they sort of shrug their shoulders. They're not terribly interested. They think this is a minor dust-up that will soon be over, as was the case in previous occasions with the Israelis and the Arabs. And, you know, Arabs uh, have, have also been through the, the ringer as well here in the United States. It was easy to convince people that Russians were bad simply because of the Cold War. All you had to do was dust off the Cold War propaganda and throw it at them. Well, now you have the same problem, unfortunately, with Muslim Arabs. Oh, Muslim Arabs, we've been fighting them for years. The hell with them. Let's hope the Israelis do a great job. With no understanding of the situation, of the humanitarian dimension, and no real interest. This is all going to come back and, and harm us in the long run. But for the moment, strategically, it's not having any impact here. No, nothing is penetrating the American public. The, uh, you're, you know far more about warfare than I. Uh, but when I look at the uh, situation in the Gulf, in the Red Sea, uh, it looks to me like the asymmetrical uh, warfare in which the common man can inflict uh, wholly disproportionate damage uh, and cost uh, on his enemy. The Houthis, for example, a ragged-assed army, a kind of Taliban on wheels, uh, now have the ability to bring shipping in the Red Sea uh, to a halt at a cost of un uncountable billions of dollars from, for people having to sail their ships uh, around a continent instead uh, or pay insurance uh, at an exorbitant price because there's a pretty good chance the Houthis will stick a missile up your jumper if you sail past them. Uh, this is a remarkable turnaround, isn't it? Well, uh, the Houthis have actually practically shut down the Suez Canal for much of the uh, commercial traffic. Uh, that's a tremendous achievement. We haven't had to have a collision or an explosion in the Suez, and people are now sailing all the way around the Cape to avoid going through the Red Sea. I'm waiting for someone in Washington to make the decision to commit uh, five or 10,000 Marine infantry or something to land in Yemen. And, you know, based on the experience in Yemen that the British had, uh, I can I can only imagine that that would be a very unrewarding experience dealing with the Houthis and running around in the mountains down there. 
no one wants to talk to anybody. Again, you know, before you launch, why not talk to people? You know, one thing that the British always did very well before they went anywhere is that they, they answer, ask this question, how do we practice economy of enemies? Who will work with us and who won't? And eventually they narrowed it down to just a very small number of people who would oppose them. And they had help from others around them. That was uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton, who was a genius at this sort of thing, the real James Bond of the 19th century. We don't have anybody thinking like that. We go in with a sledgehammer. We smash everything. We smash everybody. And then we wonder why nobody likes us and everybody wants us out. We have no friends today in Iraq. Nobody in Syria wants us except some of the Kurds. And it's not even all the Kurds. It's a minority of them. But we've managed to alienate the Iranians, the Turks, as well as all of the Arabs. So I think we're in for a long war. People think, well, you know, the Israelis will finish up in Gaza over the next few weeks. Well, finish up means expel or kill everybody who's left. Now they're, now they're going to pump some seawater into the tunnels. I'm sure that'll get rid of some of them, uh, in addition to destroying the water table and making the place unlivable. But I, I see this as dragging on. I see things changing in the Muslim world. And there's this concept called uh, Asadiyah that goes back to Ibn Khaldun, the famous uh, Muslim historiographer. And he talked about uh, social cohesion and the impact of Islam on the peoples that lived within the Islamic world. And he said, you know, no one has ever seen the power of Islam uh, uh, fully appreciates what it can do. Well, today the world is different. The people in this region are better educated, they have access to technology, and they know what's happening. Hundreds of millions of people, Turks, Arabs, Iranians, Egyptians, everyone knows what's happening. Anyone who thinks that this is going to end soon is wrong. I think this is the beginning of a very dangerous period. And frankly, I think the Israelis have uh, grossly underestimated the impact of their actions. And at the same time, we don't seem to understand it. We're sitting out there on board our aircraft carriers, waiting for the word to fly strikes. And we're trying very hard to, to split the, the Lebanese government from Hezbollah, cutting deals and agreements in the hopes that that will keep Hezbollah out. But in the long run, I don't see that happening. I think things are going to get worse, particularly in the spring. We may have a pause, a temporary ceasefire, but this is going to turn into a long, ugly war that none of us are going to like. The, uh, I know you're a patriotic American, and I, I swear I, I say this not to hurt your feelings at all, but as I watch the decline, steep and rapid, of your president, uh, such that in his latest pronunciamento, uh, he, th he, he thrice declared that the events of October 7th were 65 years ago instead of 65 days ago, and that allowed him to have a walk-on part for his father, his father, who died 20 years ago, uh, returning to uh, his kibbutz. Uh, this is not a well man. Uh, as we say in Scotland, you would not send that man out for a loaf, never mind to rule and govern the most uh, powerful uh, country in the world, of, of how much more of this can the American people put? Well, a, lo a lot of us have asked that question. <clears throat> I don't think there's any 
doubt in anybody's mind that uh, Biden is not governing anything. And whatever he says, whatever he uh, signs is put in front of him by other people. The other people are committed to two things. They're committed to the extension of this war in Ukraine. They're committed to unlimited spending. They're committed to uh, backing whatever is required in the Middle East that Israel demands. And uh, they control events. The American people, as I said, aren't paying a great deal of attention right now. But it, it will take something major to get their attention, something that hits them at home. Now, we've got problems here. Don't, don't mistake that. We have open borders, rising criminality. Lots of Americans are saying, sure, we like the Israelis, but why are we sending all of this money to Israel and Ukraine when we have open borders, when, when we can't even maintain effective armed forces, when people won't join it? I mean, all this diversity, inclusion, and equity is killing us in the, in the military. And we have so denigrated the role that men play, particularly white men, that uh, the armed forces are suffering for that dramatically. You know, somebody once said, uh, was complaining about the numbers of British soldiers, and Disraeli made the comment, no one complained about the numbers of British soldiers at Waterloo. Well, I like to point out that no one complained about the numbers of white men fighting in the armed forces at Okinawa or Midway or Normandy or anywhere else. But we're we're in a lot of trouble, Mr. Galloway. We've lost our, our way. We've lost our sense of purpose. We've lost our sense of identity. And all of these things are going to come out in, in the months ahead. And I hope that we can weather this and recover. But right now, we are admittedly in a lot of trouble. And we are not in a position to wage a major regional war. And no one should exclude that possibility. That could happen. There are a lot of people in Washington working closely with uh, Jerusalem to spark a war with Iran. And uh, that would be, in my judgment, both unnecessary and catastrophic. If that happens, uh, anyone who thinks that Russia will stand by and watch us destroy Iran is crazy. And the Chinese at this point have enormous investments in the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula. They depend heavily on the oil and gas. They don't want to see that shut down. So you're, you're talking about the, the simple truth is this. No one in the region, in the Near East or Southwest Asia or Eastern Europe wants a war except us. Chilling indeed. Tell us about your new role, uh, Colonel, uh, our country, our choice. What What is that and what do you hope to achieve? <clears throat> our country, our choice was formed before I showed up by a group of people who simply decided it doesn't make any difference for whom we vote. We get the same bad policies. They've discovered that we have this thing called the uniparty, where everyone has his handout, everyone's enriching him or herself. And that's why you don't have debates. You have very few discussions. The fight is over money. It's not over anything of substance. And we're busy falling all over ourselves to ship money overseas, largely because it results in arms sales that enrich people, and no one gives a damn about our border. Oh, a few people raise their hands and say, well, this is bad, that's unfortunate. No one seems to care about the rule of law. So they said, would you come in and be the CEO and try to be a spokesman for the people in the United States who feel disenfranchised? And our numbers are growing rapidly. I think they're going to grow a lot more next year as people begin to figure out why should I worry about who wins the election when everything stays the same? Who's really going to step forward with a new team and say, it's over? We're going to stop it. Who's going to really cut spending? It's impossible. 
uh, you can't cut spending. We have to print more money. Well, the more you do, the more likely you are to fall apart. Everybody in the United States understands this, but now I see tens of thousands of people who are coming forward and, and want this to end. So there are a lot of other issues that we don't like. We don't like the sexualization of children. You know, we're tired of the human trafficking as well as the drugs that pour into our country. We're tired of criminals who are not tried and, and dealt with as harshly as possible. Everything's out of control. Our, our Internally, we are crumbling. And everybody knows it. And that includes hundreds of thousands of veterans who are going to flock to our colors because they see nowhere else to go. And they're sick of it because many of them have suffered terribly. And the question is, for what? What did we achieve in Afghanistan? What did we achieve in Iraq? What did we achieve anywhere? Well, we all know the answer. Strategically, for us, nothing. But lots of people in Washington live at the top of the food chain. They're doing quite well. In the meantime, food is up 35%, and it's getting worse. People are having trouble putting food on the table. Not in Washington. No, not, not in the gated neighborhoods, not in Manhattan. You know, we're talking about the average American. This, this is not going to go on long. So this is what we're about, and uh, we want to end these overseas conflicts. We want to defend the border. We want to expel the illegals. We want to restore the rule of law. But at the same time, I'm, we're getting a lot of inquiries from overseas. In fact, a number of people from the continent, India, uh, are asking questions, can we form a similar chapter? And I think that could happen at some point. And what we're doing now is we're benefiting from the investment that many people are making. We're trying to make it possible for people to join us without spending any money. The last thing we want to do is take money from Americans who need it. That's extraordinarily powerful uh, message, and I, I know about messaging. Uh, I, I, I feel there is, uh, I don't know, an overlap perhaps with Mr. Carlson, Tucker Carlson, who is also uh, an extremely powerful exponent uh, of uh, the kind of counsel uh, of despair uh, at the political class in Washington. Have you thought about joining up together, you and Tucker? Well, he's been very supportive of us to this point, but we really have spent the last uh, several months building up a new platform. We're gonna build a media platform and we're trying to build membership. We put those together and our members will then get uh, fact-based news and information. We're also sick to death of the mainstream media. We, we don't need opinion-based news. What we need to know is what's really happening. You know, stop lying to us about losses. Stop lying to us about the health of our economy. Stop lying to us about criminality. Stop lying to us about the border. We're not stupid. We know we're being lied to. So we're trying to put together something that will stream routinely real fact-based news. And you know that sounds easy. It's not. Because when you go on the internet, it's very tough to sort truth from fiction. And occasionally we all make mistakes. But uh, we've got to try it, and I think we're going to be successful. But it's going to take time. The more money that comes in, the sooner we, the sooner we go further. And uh, we're going to get a lot of good people, too, to come on board with this that are going to help with the news part. We've got a lot of writers that are coming in, helping to take information, turn it into bites of, say, five to 800 words that people can understand. But we're at the beginning. Mr. Galloway, we're just starting. And I think this could be something that a lot of people in a lot of countries would appreciate. 
Could well be. Colonel Douglas McGregor, thanks as always for being on the mother of all talk shows. Well, look, thank you for joining me all alone here on New Year's Eve. I was glad of your company. I hope it brought you good cheer or at least plenty of food and drink for thought. It has been a terrible year, a hell of a year. Whether next year will be any better is effectively up to you. If you, the people, reward the criminals, send them back into office, then don't expect a different result. As Dr. Einstein memorably put it, doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result, well, that is a sure sign of madness. We're not mad here on this open university of the airwaves. We are a global university that went from strength to strength over the course of 2023, racking up millions and millions and millions of views, attracting bigger and bigger and bigger audiences all through the year. I hope that that is one thing that doesn't change in 2024. For you personally, and for your families and friends, I wish you, with my cup of tea, a very happy new year. I'll be back live on Wednesday, the 3rd of January, at the normal hour of 9 p.m. UK time. Join me then. Happy New Year. Cheers.